Hello, and welcome to the election edition of Plants and Pipettes. I'm your host, Tegan. Hi, and my name is Joram. And Joram's already mad at me. No, <laughs> not, not exactly mad, but it's um, just the election took so much of my attention and mental energy, and it's still not over. I mean, we're recording this on the Thursday night. So mm -hmm. what is it like two days after the election officially, like the election night when came and went? Um, and we still don't know who will reign the United States and whether like a racist, misogynist, sexist, imbecile will remain in power or an old white man will replace him. <laughs> um, but, oh, yeah. I hope it's an old white man this time. I, to be honest, at this point, I'd be really happy about a person that's just old, like whose worst qualities are that he's just old and white and a man. Um, I mean, there's like, okay, no, okay, no politics, I think is like. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really we can contribute. I'm, I just hope for. We hope you're all doing okay out there, guys. Yeah, for our listeners and our friends that we know in the United States, I hope everybody's safe. Um, I was and still am afraid that it will come to violence when it gets close when when the race will will be close so i just um hope that i'm wrong and it won't come to this um and that yeah stay safe everyone that everything will be over by the time this episode's out or at least by next week and then that we can start to rebuild and yeah have a better time mm. Uh, good news of the week was that this week I also had a birthday. That was kind of fun. Um, although my birthday was also the last day of freedom before lockdown. So that was kind of a weird experience. But um, it was nice. It was still a nice celebration. I am now 32 years old. Means I've caught up with Yoram once again. And yeah, I think 32 is going to be a good year. Why not? <laughs> I mean, no, it will be good. Um, I won't say yeah, everybody... cynical right now. Like it will be good. <laughs> Please write in and tell me all the amazing things you achieved when you were thirty-two. That's no, that's what I want right now. Twenty twenty-one will like the, the year twenty twenty-one will be a good year. I will just decide that now, um, despite whatever might be coming. But it will be good, um, and yeah, it will. I think thirty-two has a good chance of being like your thirty-second year will be better than your thirty-first year with like. Half of it like or two thirds of it. Like technically my 33rd year, but my year of being 32, because the first year was zero to one. Is that how it works? I, uh, I'm i always confused with that. But yeah, you're right. Anyway, I, I just want to say like the, the upcoming year um, Look, has, has a high chance of being better than the year that we just put behind us, because the year behind us, yeah. not that great. I mean, by the end of 2021 or by November 2021, I'm going to be king of something. That's my aim. <laughs> like... <laughs> Instead of New Year's resolution, I'm going to do like new age group resolution and yeah, run five kilometers without dying and be king of a thing. We can work out what that is later. It's good that in a, in a times of um, crisis of democracy, you plan to reestablish a monarchy somewhere. I'm in favor of that. I mean, again, a benevolent dictatorship is not looking super terrible compared to the alternative, not so benevolent, still probably a dictatorship. <laughs> That's going anyway. Uh, yeah, I my my good news this week <clears throat> is um, that I I have some escape uh, escapism es escapism 
that I want to recommend to everyone. Um, and it's oh, yeah. really um, nothing too new. Um, it's a game from uh, 2016. It's called Firewatch. And I played it. It's like an indie game um, that I wanted to have a relaxed night of just playing it a little bit. And then it was like a very intense and suspenseful story that kept me hooked until um, I, I was way past my bedtime. Um, but I, I couldn't put it down and, and I had to f finish it. And it was a very um, enjoyable experience. And I, I never, I wouldn't recommend it because like everybody's watching TV shows and series and stuff. And um, this game has such an amazing story that is so very well told. And I think it's even for people who don't really game um, on, on computers. And I think it's like, it's out on all platforms. So wherever you might want to play or pick it up, you could and it's just very good like you play as a character you're in a in a tower in a national park and you have to watch for fires um that's sort of your main task but around that there's a main a whole story and the gameplay mechanic is that you're walking around in a first person view but you're pretty much just hiking from place to place and there's no combat there's no enemies there's no hiding or anything you're just like in nature and you have a story that unfolds over a walkie-talkie conversation with a colleague of yours and things that happen around you. And that's actually really fun. And I would like to recommend that. And that's why I wanted to bring this up today as sort of, if you need something to get away, um, this game is a perfect opportunity in my mind. So when you said Firewatch, I actually immediately went to this, was it um, Danish or one of the Nordic company countries, I think had... Um, a crackling fire that you can just play on the TV, like hours and hours of video of a fire um, with sound effects. And occasionally somebody would come and put a log on it. And that was where my mind went to. And I think we're now entering in the Northern Hemisphere. We're entering that kind of weather where I can just sit for hours with a blankie and, and watch the fire TV. Yeah, yeah. The game has a, sim a similar... Um, sort of serendipitous enjoyable feeling to it at one point you find a little pocket like um, a single use camera and you can take pictures within the game um, and in the end you can even see a website where the pictures are that you took and they're like very scenic and beautiful um, so I, I noted the link uh, in case anybody wants to see that and get in, get sort of hooked on playing the game um, because yeah it's just you can you have the story mode, but you can also just like walk around and find peace in like this virtual forest. Um, um, yeah, you don't need to travel anywhere, and you can still like hike through the mountains and forests and alongside some rivers to a lake. It's really pretty. Um, so it's my it was my my little happy place that I found. Cool, sounds nice. But you also noted something gamey on our little list here. Oh, I, I played the Among Us game, which everybody's been playing. Yeah, I haven't played day. it yet, but I want to. I think it's fun. I mean, you just go into a kind of spaceship scenario with like usually 10 other or nine other players, so 10 in total. And there's one imposter amongst the crew, or it can be different numbers. People can adapt it depending on, you know, game settings. And, you know, the ones who are not imposters should be doing their tasks and then the, the imposter should be running around and, like, murdering people and trying to get away with it. Uh, and then you can vote every now and then once the dead bodies are found to see who you think is the imposter. And it's just um, quite easy to play randomly with other people on the internet so you don't need to have nine other friends, <laughs> which might be helpful um, for those of us who are feeling a bit isolated right now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a fun game. I think yep. it's, it's quite nice. And I don't game. I am terrible at gaming and I struggle to 
even move with any kind of joystick thing, but this is like on the phone and using your fingers. And if I can do it, you guys can do it. So. I didn't know that it even exists on the phone now. I only heard of it as like a PC game, but awesome. Yeah. yeah. It, like we played a similar game in real life back when we could hang out together at like lab retreats, something about werewolves. Yeah, it's very much like werewolf or yeah, any of these kind of murdery games that you play in a group. Yeah, um, where you have some people in there that have a dark secret and the others have to vote them out and not accidentally, which happens more often, um, kill one of their peers and remove them from the game. It's the same here. So when they when they vote people, that person gets like thrown from the airlock and yeah. they sort of float through space, which is which is very adorable. Yeah. 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 It's, so I would say harmless fun. Yeah. And it's probably good to play with strangers because the problem with those like werewolf games is you end up being highly suspicious of your close friends. So if you play with strangers, maybe Yeah. No hard feelings? There was one yeah. colleague that I, in the end, I sus, uh, suspected to be a psychopath from the way he manipulated all of us. Just too lying. Like he, was, he had no problem just, lying straight in our faces. You're just jealous because he was better than you. That's how it is. Like It must have been that, yeah. And totally not my like inner fear that came up when I looked into his dead eyes when he was like telling me that he's not uh, the imposter. Or not the werewolf. I mean, I, I like playing those kind of werewolf games for the chaos where I just like target one person and start screaming that we should murder them and trying to like get as many people to murder. <laughs> like usually somebody I like, not ganging up on, on somebody I don't know. But Coming back to the idea that Tegan will be a king somewhere. <laughs> screaming murder. But yeah. Yeah. Fun times. Um, the other exciting news this week, which is related to the King thing, I would say, um, was there was the announcement that Elon Musk is, has decided that there's not going to be any rules in space, <laughs> yes. um, which I don't know. When I saw it, I was like, of course, of, of course he said that. Like, we, we all knew that. I mean, I'm just waiting until next week or in two weeks time where he announces that he's like God Emperor of Mars or you know, president of, of the, the known universe or something ridiculous. But what a stupid thing to say. I mean, what an absolutely ridiculous thing. But like, just so expected that I wasn't even, I wasn't shocked. I was just like, okay, so of that's happening now. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course he did. Like, go to space and stay there, Elon. Like, of course you've made the statement that there are no rules. Like, yeah, I I don't agree with the current structures we have in play, but people who think there should be no rooms, rules, they should not. They should be locked away. I don't know. That's just that just terrifies me. That person. And what I find even crazier is the details of it. That it was in a terms and service agreement um, of the SpaceLink uh, mobile internet agreement. So when you sign up for Elon's satellite internet service, you have to agree on your internet service terms of service um that you will accept that there won't be any earth-based rule on mars and that they will self-govern which is just even more insane it's like a dystopian science fiction where you like check off somewhere on a box that you want to get internet and by doing that you accept <laughs> the lack of any law and rule um on yeah. a mission to mars uh, because of the the one guy, um, they're like the billionaire founder of the company who wants to have like a lawless anarchy on his on his ship so that he can make but, up I mean, all the rules. This is the thing. He doesn't want it to be lawless. He wants that he has control of the laws. That's like the yeah. the clear fine print here. That, I mean, it's not even fine. It's just in bold letters. Like, yeah, ah. yeah. Um, so Elon's a- going into space. Jeff's going into space. Like all the rich people can go into space. 
and stay in space. That would be the... Yeah, I wouldn't mind if they would just leave and stay away, but I mean, it has implications further than that. But um, anyway, yeah. He's in Berlin now, Elon. He flew in with his private jet to have interviews with engineers here for the big factory that he's building, and it made news. Um, and before, first, I didn't know why he's coming, and so the news were just like Elon Musk landed in Berlin, and everybody's like, "Oh, the big Elon is here!" Um, and now he announced that it, it, uh, he wants to hold interviews to hire engineers or something. Um, so yeah, so it's uh, the whole town is is in uproar because. Our new god of Mars is here. Just spraying his musk all over everything. Yeah. I think it's time to talk about plants, maybe. My favorite plant. And my favorite plant this week was something that I researched um, a couple of days or ago already. Uh, and then today when I was and looking too for... smug. <laughs> no, like, I, I had it all researched and then I, I went and looked for fun facts and I found a story that I found so much nicer that I tossed my prepared plants of the week things you. overboard and we'll use that later and we'll just, just um, wanna, sort of go on the flying now from based on the article that I found. That I was researching like in the hour up to the podcast and Yoram just would not stop texting me about how he had all the research already done. I <laughs> And like to... was listing or how amazing he was constantly. That was not the purpose of my message. You smug dolphin bastard. <sighs> that was not what I wanted to achieve, but anyway. <laughs> Tell so... us about your amazing plan that's so good that you threw another plant away. <laughs> the plant I want to talk about today, amongst others, is uh, Franciscan Manzanita, or Arcostaphilus franciscana, um, which is a sprawling woody plant um, with seeds that are more likely to sprout when they're cued by a fire smoke. So um, something not too uncommon. It's uh, um, native. It's Australian. It, yeah, but I think it is native to... I, at least the story here is about um, the plants growing in the United States on the west coast of the United States. Okay. Um, but uh, it could be Australian as well, if my... I mean, there's also a lot of fires happening in the US, aren't there? If yeah. it's not. Um, but so the story, like the article that I found, it's on um, Science News, and it's uh, all about um, endangered or um, plant species that were extinct and, and that are rediscovered. Um, often after hundreds of years when we believe we haven't seen them for a hundred years and suddenly they are discovered again. And it opens with the story of um, of a beach, um, a beach plum, which is a big shrub. And there was one famous beach plum growing um, by the beach, um, as the name suggests. And, in, and making plums. And as it was the only um, place in this area that provided some sort of shade and cover uh, from being seen. Can you imagine what people use this plant for? Making out? No, worse, they use it as a toilet. Um, <laughs> and when you use okay. a plant as a toilet, um, what you're essentially doing is you're fertilizing the ground a lot. And it was too much for this plant, and it died. Mm -hmm. And it was the last oh. known wild example. And oh, no! And it was killed because it was used as a toilet. I mean, we still have some of these plants in gardens and so on, but it was the last wild-grown um, beach plum um, and so now they are very eager to like they, they know of a, a couple of the locations and they hope that they find a more uh, where they're still growing sort of um, artificially 
in gardens, in um, like botanical preserves and stuff like that. Um, but that's not the plan that I want to talk about. It's just like the opening of the article, like how 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 easily it can happen that you lose a plant and it goes extinct um, because it, it becomes a beach toilet. Um, so Don't pee on your plants, guys. Yeah, take her message. Especially not with like groups of people during beach season and then. Um, yeah, mm. it it won't survive that. Sorry, Although, I mean, is it just me who like? Can't you just pee in the ocean? Isn't that a little bit what the ocean is for? I would say so, but um, it, apparently people would rather like take uh, cover in in the bush instead of just go in the ocean. Um, interesting. I mean, swim away from people a bit. Like there are rules and like yeah, there's societal order, but. <laughs> you have to be in the water to pee in the ocean like don't just stand yeah. at the side and pee in the ocean that's not that's not nice <laughs> that's actually quite off-putting as an image yeah <laughs> but i mean the fish are doing it yarm so why can't we yeah um and uh, a fun side fact is that there actually have been um researchers looking um for extremophiles so especially halophiles um so plants that are very oh, resistant dear. to to salt, <laughs> to um, salt near, <laughs> near um rest stops for, uh, at motorways where people all like go to the toilet outside behind like a little container thing um and they found some like very specific plants there that sort of adapted to this high salt input um, that found wow. their niche there um, because most other but, things wow. would die. <laughs> but that's not what I want to talk about today. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the Franciscan Manzanita uh, plant. Um, and um, the plant was um, named um, in 1905 by a botanist called Alice Eastwood that we might talk about at a different uh, point in this podcast a little bit more. But she was a pretty cool botanist going around um, and she named dozens of plants um, in, yeah, in 19, uh, and she named this plant in 1905. Uh, and eventually this plant... Um, went sort of extinct we didn't know anymore where it was and we thought it was lost um but then there was one spot where um like a, on a on a roundabout um uh, in the middle like on the streets there was one of these plants growing in the wild but we didn't know about it it was overgrown by shrubs and other things um and at one point the city council decided that they uh, wanted to re re model rebuild this roundabout and uh, so gardening crews came in and um, for a day, they were like cutting down all kinds of plants and throwing them in a big um, shredder, destroying all of the plants there, except for this like wild plant and I guess some others and that they left because I, I, the story doesn't go into detail here why they stopped, but I guess their shift was over and so they left. Um, and then a, a botanist, a conservation biologist um, passed by who constantly often drove by this roundabout and he ca just came back from a conference where they talked about um, the need to search for these like individual wild plants somewhere in um, in nature that are, might st still be hiding of plants that we think that are extinct, but that are actually still there somewhere. So he just gave a talk about this and then he passed this plant and it got his attention and he thought like, this is odd. This plant doesn't um, looks like a, a rare plant, like something that's not so... Uh, common to find and he didn't immediately uh, um, find it as this this species um, as this uh, franciscan manzanita he thought it was a related plant and then he uh, came there and he brought some um, botanist friends and they like four of them looked at the plant until they were certain this was actually a very rare plant this was a plant that was believed to be extinct 
growing on this roundabout there. And then they could convince the city to start a major operation to actually um, dig up the plant with a ton of soil around it. On the top of the article that we're linking, there's a picture of it. And then they did like a, a heavy transport mission to bring it to a park uh, owned by the city where they would then plant it again. And they had to close down a tunnel of like a major um, street. So the, the city really put in effort and took um, like at, at some cost to save this plant and now it's technically technically not growing in the wild anymore because now it's uh, um, gardeners take care of it so it's still technically extinct because it's extinct in the wild and now it's in our care but the the specimen still exists and they're taking cuttings of it and they're making more of the plant now so it's not extinct from the gene pool it's just extinct in the wild in the wild and now we only have it in sort of conserved places and then the article goes on on more like there's another plant, um, the uh, parasitic Tismia Neptunis plant um, that uh, is like very small. It's, it's a parasitic plant, so it's very wide and grows on top of other plants. It's very hard to find. And so there's actually search parties um, that go out to try and find more of it um, to also preserve this plant because it was also believed to be extinct. And there's some relatives of this plant that are still believed to be extinct um, and they hope that by searching for like this one plant the, the Thysmia Neptunis that they also might uh, uncover the uh, Thysmia Americana which to this day we don't know of any species of them of any individuals of them growing in the wild and overall it's like a very nice ar uh, article talking about like the great length that um, botanists and conservation biologists um, go to to like to rediscover plants that we believe to be lost mm -hmm. so yeah that's sort of amongst like i picked out the the uh, franciscan uh franciscan manzanita plant or uh acostaphilos franciscana as a sort of main example here but there's actually three to four plants in the article that are really fun to to read about and i recommend that to all of you so because Yoram has chosen to be so smug and discuss multiple plants, I'm also going to discuss multiple people um, in our non-Y scientist, non-Y male scientist um, segment. And today I'm talking about Luciana Leiter and Luisa de la Viegas. I hope I said those names wrong, right? <laughs> Not wrong. <laughs> I hope I said those names right. Um, so Luciana is um, a postdoctoral researcher at the Universidad Federal de Bahia in Salvador, Brazil. And um, Luisa de la Vegas is um, at the University of Maryland in College Park and also a postdoctoral uh, researcher. So these two are not actually plant scientists. So I'm cheating a little bit here by not doing like a botanist or a plant scientist, but I think um, I want to talk about them mostly because of their interest in women in science, but also their interest in sort of science communication and um getting people more involved in, in nature. So this kind of biophilia, this, this love of the world around them. And I came across these two based on a career column that came out in um, Nature like just a couple of weeks back at the end of October. And the, the column is called Too Intelligent for the Life Sciences in Brazil, How Two Female Researchers Fought Back. So it's basically just a kind of short story written by the two of them about how 
you know, growing up in Brazil, they were both obviously intelligent women, but they were discouraged from going into biology specifically, um, or the soft sciences more generally, simply because it wasn't seen as a sensible career move. So they were encouraged to be like a doctor or to go into just something which has a bit more, um, what's higher paying, isn't it? And, and has some more prestige, but also is a sort of safer job. Yeah, so they met when they were both working as postdocs at the Federal University of Bahia in Salvador, um, Brazil, and then they co-founded a sort of women in science network along with two other female researchers, which is, again, promoting gender equality in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, so our STEM subjects, with a focus on promoting this within um, Brazil. So, like as with many other countries, Brazil has this problem of women being underrepresented in STEM and this really strong leaky pipeline. So it's mentioned in the article that I think nearly 50%, yeah, so 47.5% of Brazilian PhD holders are female. But, you know, as with many other countries, as the, the scientific career progresses, it becomes much more male dominated, which I think you guys are all familiar with that problem by now. <laughs> It's sort of one of the main things that we talk about. <laughs> it's plants and pipettes yeah. and the problem with the underrepresentation of women with uh, increasing uh, career advancement. Okay, so this network that the um, two of them with the two others um, developed is called Kunha Ase, and it's coming from two different languages, which is Guarani and Yoruba. So that's uh, indigenous South American for the first, I think, and African for the second origins, where Kunha means woman and Ase means powerful, so it's just powerful women, basically. And the idea is obviously then to empower women. And at the moment, they've been focusing on trying to work out why it is that women might be discouraged from pursuing a career in biology. So they did a pilot um, study just with like friends and family to sort of discuss why it wouldn't be seen, especially from the parents' point of view, why you wouldn't encourage your daughters to get into this like fascinating field. Um, and they're also involved in different like elements, which are kind of, yeah, encouraging and inspiring women is, is the aim. Um, and I was looking at their different sort of um, CVs and I, I liked um, Luciana's, I found she was discussing that she has a strong interest in looking at how human nature relationships evolve and also how like experiences you have very early in childhood can form your love of nature, which can then have, you know, obvious implications for pro-environmental behavior. So as I said, like her background is not like a specific um, plant biologist background, but instead she has like eco psychology as well as like conservation psychology, which I think is a really important field because honestly, at this point, we know a lot about what we should be fixing and changing, like what the problems are with the world as far as like need for conservation, you know, climate change, all these issues. But there's something still stopping humans from acting. So I think this is kind of an important field to understand how we can make people more motivated to actually yeah. get into activity. Yeah. Um, which is a really cool thing. So, yeah, this is the, the two um, scientists, uh, Luciana Leiter and Luisa de la Vegas. I will link to the column um, and also maybe to their homepages so you can see what they're doing as well if you want to. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Bias.
so for my bias that I brought today, I couldn't, um, I could not, not do something political. Uh, and I no. look for a bias that um, sort of explains why right now sort of both parties are very upset and surprised. And one explanation amongst many, one explanation could be the false consensus bias. And this is the idea that we have this false idea that our opinion is the opinion of the majority, whatever our opinion is. Um, so there's an example where they did a study, a, a psychological study in Stanford, and they asked students to run around with a sign for 30 minutes that says, eat at Joe's. So a pretty like meaningless sign. Um, uh, and they were asked to do that. And uh, they were also asked uh, if they think their peers would agree to do the same or how many of their peers would agree to do their, the same thing. So 53% agreed to wear the sign and they believed that approximately 65% of the other people would also agree to do that. And 47% of the people uh, refused to wear the sign and estimated that around 69% of the people would also refuse to wear the sign. So both groups thought that about two-thirds of the other people would follow or would do, choose the same thing that they chose. Um, so, so both of them overestimated the consensus on that. Um, and this is something that we see in politics very often when there was another study where it could show that um, racist people often believe that their racist views are um, the prevalent view, the prevalent opinion amongst their peers, even when that isn't the case. It's this whole idea of the, the silent majority that they're just representing the people who don't dare to speak up or things like that. And so that even if they have very extreme views, they still believe that um, sort of silently the majority of people agrees with them even though that's not the case um, and yeah that's a problem in society uh, and so there's the, the best way around this is just uh, awareness for that and training people to sort of question whether their own beliefs are actually held by many others and I know that's like that's a complicated thing you can't easily tell a racist to reflect on their racist views and and think about whether or not so many other people are actually also racist or if that's maybe an extreme position of just this person and their immediate surroundings. Um, and I found this cool um, article around it about the, the false consensus bias. Um, and they also give some reasons why we might fall into this bias, why we might fall, uh, follow this wrong idea. Um, and yeah, the the reasons why we want to believe that is that in general, um, we want to believe that we are normal, that we are not outliers, we are not uh, at the extreme points of any scale. We want to believe that we are sort of, we feel safer when we follow the consensus. And if we then have an extreme view, we then have to sort of, in our brain constructors world where our view isn't extreme, it's actually consensus view. Um, and there's also that we then hang around with more extremists. Um, whatever view we have, we like to surround uh, ourselves uh, in our sort of day-to-day -day contacts with people of similar views. And we might hang around with like the 10 other racists in our community, but we think that the entire community is racist um, or like replace racist here for any other thing that you believe. Yeah, in. it works both ways. You think that everybody yeah. else in society should be as, you know, lefty as you are. Yeah, and that's sort of my, my opening into the segment is 
um, people are surprised how many people are still voting for Trump and uh, the Trump supporters are surprised why not everybody's voting for Trump, why there are so many left people still there. And um, both of them sort of under, uh, o yeah, overestimated the consensus on this political opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's also things like cognitive av uh, availability so that it's much easier to think about your own viewpoints and experiences and from then extrapolate to others when you imagine like what is the view of somebody else. Um, then it's easier to start from your own opinion and then just think ah, it's probably some sort of flavor of my own opinion that another person has. Um, and then there's some some other things like, like uh, attention focus and so on that we are more likely to pick up the things that support our, our belief that we think, oh, this person must also be a supporter um, mm -hmm. and is a stand-in for many others like him or her um, and so on. So it's something that's very sort of intrinsic to us. A lot of that are, are very human nature that we want to be part of a bigger group and we don't want to stand out. Um, but let, that leads to, to this bias. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting in the context. Like, I mean, you're talking about the racism specifically, and it's it's one of these kind of things I've gone back and forward on mentally a lot of times since Trump has taken the presidency. Is is it better to know if people are racist? Like, given that people are racist, a certain percentage of people, I mean, are always like, like, I mean, yeah, everybody's racist in in some ways. But you know, there's there's people who are actively going to vote for things which are harming people. Should we know if they are or not? And, you know, I always thought, yeah, it's better. It's better to know those people so that we can, like, be aware and avoid those people and, you know, shame those people and, and sort of work on, on fixing that problem that we have clearly in, in all of our societies. Um, but then when Trump really started doing his thing, him being so outspoken in his beliefs was having real-life violent repercussions, which was actually costing the lives of people and... I find that very difficult then because if he hadn't been saying those things, people would be alive who now are not alive or are, are gravely injured because of him saying those things or writing them on Twitter, right? So I find it really hard to then justify that it's better to know that he's racist because that has real consequences and the consequences don't come to me. So it's, it's very unfair for me to say, yeah, yeah, better, better to hear him being racist because I mean, I'm not bearing the brunt of any of those consequences, neither the emotional stuff or the physical stuff. So, yeah. I mean, this kind of says that like, doesn't matter if the racists hear the other racists, they're anyway going to think everybody else is racist. So there's, that's one part of the argument now, right? Like, yeah. I, I also had this feel that, like, the more that you hear somebody be racist, the more other people, like, express their racism. But anyway, they're thinking it now. This is kind of the, this bias. Yeah, I think what I would like to have is, like, solid data in terms of, like, surveys and, and like, sort of whole society-wide surveys on political beliefs um, that we can then also make use for policymaking without then immediately giving the groups power, uh, which is what we saw with Trump. We not only saw that he and the, his supporters, they expressed their racist beliefs, but they also directly went to power. So we at the same time saw the, the amount of people that exist that support that, but they also have immediately something that they can, immediately can change something in the system, which then leads to the loss of life and violence and terrible consequence, consequences. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, obviously, like we're we're using the term racist here in like a very simplified form, yeah. just like in this kind of like just to, to discuss it here. But 
it's obviously more complicated, but yeah, I, it, it definitely has, it makes me think more about that. I mean, obviously, there are many, many horrible repercussions of Trump getting power again. There were already many horrible things that happened in the first, like that aside, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about this just... And there's also another sort of follow-up thing on this. There's um, the pluralistic ignorance effect. That's sort of the opposite uh, of the false consensus effect. That's the idea where you hold a private belief, but you think um, your private belief goes uh, against the belief of the community, even though within the community, when you actually ask them individually, they all hold privately the same belief as you. So you underestimate the your own belief system, how much it is represented in the community. So if you think about a repressive community where um, you might not have like access to like certain types of like female healthcare, like abortions, or where you can't drink alcohol, but then individuals they defy the rule of the community and they drink alcohol, but they think within the community nobody agrees with them. Um, so they would not take any action to change the rules of the community because they think they are alone with their own thing but when you ask them individually a majority of the people actually drink alcohol in private or when they have the need for an abortion they take one um i mean that's uh like get ex try to get access to one that's something we actually observe we have like people who fight tooth and nails against uh the rights or like abortion clinics or like proper health care but th there's, the there's two things there like one of those is just being like a hypocrite and the other is you know not wanting to express your belief like it doesn't mean you're necessarily yeah. expressing the opposite belief it's just like fear to express your but it's true also, belief right yeah but also the yeah i mean there's definitely i mean there's also there's like also in the context of sort of this bystander effect thing so again discussing this in the concept of racism which is also a conversation i had earlier this week with somebody else um so if you're in a group of like blokey dudes and um, somebody says something casually that's sexist or like casual racism. And then everybody's kind of standing there and like nobody calls out that person and says, hey, hey, Yoram, like what you just said there, that was super sexist. Maybe don't say that. That's not cool anymore or that's not cool at all. But nobody says that. There's kind of this thing where everybody just sort of like nervous giggles. And one possible explanation is that everybody else is also sexist or racist or whatever the problem is. But the other proper the possible example is that a section, a selection of those people, you know, maybe two out of 10, maybe five out of 10, maybe even nine out of 10 are all wanting, like feeling uncomfortable, but nobody makes a move. So maybe they all have this, what was it? Pluralistic, uh, pluralistic, pluralistic um, ignorance. beliefs, ignorance. Maybe they, they all want to say that Yoram is sexist. Yeah. But, but they believe they the feel... sexist represents the other nine in the group. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I mean, in such a situation, you could have um, like multiple effects again. That, but that could be one of them. I think about like in, when we introduced gay, uh, gay marriage in Germany, um, there were actually polls that said that a majority of people were in favor of that. But when you just sort of group them by by party lines, um, you could either easily come to the conclusion that while you and some people are actually in favor of it, the majority isn't around you based on things that you perceive in um sort of in daily life based what you perceive in interactions with people and their views on homosexuality based on what you see on the media so you have the feeling that there is no majority in favor of gay marriage when in fact when you polled it and when you asked the people individually there is so everybody was underestimating the the opinion of the community um in respect to their own thing um so it's a it's a 
another important bias just to be aware of that that you might have a very wrong idea about sort of the average person um, around you and that you have to do some sort of active reflection and active thinking to figure out to, to, or to overcome these biases and um, they everything but like not too much or you'll be an anxious mess <laughs> yeah yeah but it's if, if you have some opinion try to figure out um if you actually like where on sort of the, the bell curve of opinions you lie are you like on one of the far ends or are you like right in the meaty part I mean, of this the curve? Is, this is really hard to find out also because yeah. I mean, a lot of people then, you know, you're going to go and look for some some sort of evidence, yeah. but that evidence is already driven by your preferences. So like what news source you're going to or, yeah, you know. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's really I mean, not I would something say like easy. <laughs> like, it's, like the only thing you, is when you have like solid, well-conducted surveys where you can then get some idea based especially on political questions, but also on other things. Like, for example, like for us, GMO is such a thing where like in my feeling, in my gut feeling, I would say that the majority of Germans is against GMO. But I actually don't really have any solid data on this. Like, nah, I, I, I have like some, some like um, sort of what's a like lighthouse people that sort of give me the idea that a large group is against that but i could be I falling into one of these, Germany, these biases nah i think that's true I, I could be yeah it could be accurate but i could be overestimating or underestimating it um and because there have been I studies when when people when people were given the option to buy gmo bread but it was cheaper that they would then rather go for the cheaper bread, and then suddenly the GMO didn't matter well, that doesn't anymore. Mean no, that doesn't mean that the, 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 they don't care about GMO. It just means that they're they have it's different low priority. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's not the same thing, Yarm. I'm just saying it's like it's hard to actually overcome this, but I think it's important to be aware of these effects. In any case, Yarm has basically carried on the theme of the show and presented two different things instead of one thing, and those two things are in opposition of each other, which I think kind of summarizes for me the the overall theme of this week, which is like, how the hell are humans the dominant species on this planet? Like, I have accidentally spent time on Twitter this week, which was horrible, and I am just Don't, yeah. shocked that we have managed to get this far, guys. Like... Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But, but again, was, um, cherry picking evidence, Tegan. Um, Twitter is in this um, in the insane cesspool of of Twitter is a hellscape. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I like the cognitive bias. How so often there's one bias, but then there's also the opposite bias, which has similar. Like this, this is not just this case. There are several cases where it's like on one hand this, but on the other hand, there's also evidence of this. Which just shows that human brains are complex and quite stupid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, let's let's talk about some of the things we found during the week. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Um. Yeah, I want to quickly mention something about the English language and the use of it. In science, so as you probably all know, English is kind of the dominant language of science right about now. And within the the journal Science, there was a short article about this that came out at the end of October by Rodrigo Perez Ortega, and it was discussing 
a plus one article called The Disadvantages in Preparing and Publishing Scientific Papers Caused by the Dominance of the English Language and Science, and then colon, The Case of Colombian Researchers in Biological Sciences. And this was published in September by Valeria Ramirez um, Castaneda. And it's basically just kind of a study looking at the increased effort that is involved in discussing science and writing about science in a language that is not your your native mother tongue. Um, so in the the summary, there's, for example, the idea that it would take on average about 12 more working days for Colombian biologists to prepare a manuscript in English compared to if they had to do that in Spanish. Um and there are other disadvantages which also come up. So, like, for example, uh, 43% of doctoral students um, uh, say that they had their articles rejected or revised specifically because of the English language and grammar used in in the articles, which is a bit, like, concerning, um, if it's, especially if it's rejected. Um, and then 33% also elected not to attend international conferences because of the language issues. And I think what's even more of a problem about this is that the author here noticed a correlation, a positive correlation between the skill of somebody's English as a second language speaker and their socioeconomic economic background. So basically you're more likely to be proficient at English if you come from a richer family or like, you know, wealthier, which means that we're now starting to stack those disadvantages on top of each other. So this is a bit of a concern, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It reminds me of this uh, concept that we only have um, a certain mental capacity that we can spend on learning new things. And if we are mentally um, busy with just our everyday life, which is like ha getting enough money to pay the rent, having working multiple jobs on side of our education, it's much harder to do as well in our education. Like then if you then train the skill and you become very good at the skill, you pretty much spend all your mental capacity um, and you can't also then put in the time to also learn the language skill or maybe scientific writing or maybe good presentation practice because these are all like things on top that you don't have any space in your mind anymore to to deal with these things and this then results in these biases that uh, disproportionately affect people that have a lower income or that come from places where it's much more stressful to just sort of exist like your your daily struggle to get income and to pay rent and to just yeah exist in 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 your uh, community um this gives you a disadvantage then also on the learning side even if you have technical access to the same resources um uh -huh. and yeah and it's something that we have to sort of work against or at least keep in mind when uh, i mean like we both are not really in positions to to decide on grants or so on but i wish people who do invitations for conferences or that hand out grant money that they are also aware of these things that are selecting for when they select for all of the soft skills around the pure scientific technical skill um because i think i think like with with the english thing specifically in the scientific field like and it's raised in the article at the end of the abstract. It is important to have kind of a common language for science. This really does um, fuel the ability for researchers to kind of be in contact with each other. But then if you are saying that's something we've decided 
as a group and we can discuss at another time who's made those decisions. But if that's how the system is, you then have to have mechanisms to compensate for the advantages and disadvantages you have chosen to give different people based on, on, on those decisions that have been made. And then the question becomes, on who does the onus fall? Like, who is going to bear the cost? Because you can't ask an individual student to bear the entire cost of 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 these, like, necessities as defi- defined by the system, right? So yeah. I think it comes down to, like, there needs to be education and there needs to be, like, like resources made available which are not coming at the cost of, of the individual. Yeah. Yeah, and even in, they have to be resources have to be spent in support of the individual. Um, if you imagine that you invite then people on job positions that might not have yet the language skills that others have um, that are native speakers or that have other advantages, where they could um, spend money earlier in their education to spend a year abroad in an English speaking country to like polish their language skills, that when you then give um, jobs to people with these disadvantages that you then also have room in their project design that they can take language classes and you also offer these language classes. These are sort of very, like they, that costs resources to the institution. But apart from that, it's a very straightforward concept to um, alleviate some of these negative effects. Of of course, that's not a solution for everything, but it it would help if we would make um, sort of these additional skill courses very easily available and also consider that in our project design because when we see phd students working like six days a week you can't really expect them to also spend i don't know six hours a week to learn the language that they need for their work and so when i say disadvantage i don't mean as like a a bad personal quality i mean as a disadvantage in the eyes of the system like the system is rather putting the person at a disadvantage and it is also the task of the system or the institutions to make up for that. And we see that sometimes now, but not as not in the extent that we need it um, to really overcome this this problematic, this like systematic discrimination in that regard. Um actually I like I mean we're getting better ability to deal with this, I think, because we're getting better like translation tools and stuff like that. And actually next week I'm gonna go to a conference which is um like the co- conservation in Latin America community. So it's going to be held with, they said the the speakers can speak the language of their preference, but they're aiming to have um, translation into Spanish and English available. So I'm really curious about how this goes down because I've, I've not been to a non-English, non-predominantly English speaking conference before. And if, if this works, I'll be quite enthusiastic about it. I'm, I'm quite quite curious to see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm also yeah. curious to hear more. Um, I found a, th- a story about what we can learn from plant research um, when we talk about uh, measures to contain the COVID uh, virus. The, I said it last week, I still didn't learn like which name is the virus and which one name is the disease. So how do we fight COVID with knowledge got, uh, that we got from plants? And um, this is, on first glance, to me, it sounded a little bit ridiculous. It sounded like something like people want to step into the spotlight of the, the thing that's currently in the news and be like, hey, we're plant research, we're also relevant. But then I read the story. It really and I think does. It's, actually, it's a very cool idea. Um, and the idea is that uh, the problem with, with the COVID spread is, especially outdoors, 
we don't really know how the aerosols behave that we breathe out. Um, because the rules in most places um, say you have to wear masks indoors. But when you're outdoors, very often it says it's safe to not wear a mask because the aerosols, they diffuse so quickly that you can't really infect anybody around you. Um, and now um, two people, from, two plant researchers, Jonathan West and Sarah Perriman, they published an opinion article in Frontiers in Public Health um, where they talked about what we know from um, plant disease research in the field because there we also have the spread of um, pathogens, in this case like fungal spores or viruses, plant viruses, in, um, in, in water, in aerosols, in droplets of different sizes, when it rains, when we talked, I, I think about this also on the blog, when you have um, sort of droplets on, on a leaf and then another drop hits the leaf and then it sprays the droplets of the leaf and then can, that can spread uh, pathogens from plant to plant. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that, we, there was extensive research about different droplet sizes and how far they can travel and how long they can stay airborne. Um, and there we have some droplets that are very relevant also to sort of human um, uh, droplets that exist in human-based aerosols or human-made aerosols. And they can stay in the air for several seconds and they can travel several meters, um, which means that in crowded areas, there the chances increase that the droplets actually stay long enough in the air that somebody else can breathe them in and potentially be infected i mean at this point it's important to say this is from plant research there's no good research about um, how many droplets you have to breathe in um, to get sick and so on so take this now with a grain of salt but the their conclusion there is that it might be useful to wear masks in more places um, just to be safe um, to when you even in crowded outdoor spaces it might be a good idea to wear masks, even though in in many places, at least I can say that from from Germany, like in Berlin, you have like some streets where you have to wear a mask. But apart from that, the the, the idea is that you're safe as long as you're outdoors. Um, the pathogens can't hit you, like the the virus can't hit you. Um, and based on what we know from how pathogens travel on the field from plant to plant and what distances the air droplets can um, to travel, uh, it might actually be the case that we need to or that it would be smart to wear the masks in more places um even like as, as soon as we're like as long as we're in the distance of some meters to a, to a person even outside um it might be better to wear a mask and i found it interesting to sort of take what we know about like droplet dispersal in the plant system where we can do very easily sort of experiments because when the plants get sick we don't have the same ethical problem as if we would do the experiment with a lot of humans and would like make different sort of pathogen-loaded aerosols and spray them in different groups of people and see how far they travel and how many people get sick. You can't do that, obviously, but you can do that in plants. And it doesn't matter to the water droplet for its sort of ability to travel if it's loaded with a fungal spore or with a virus. Uh, and so, um, therefore, these these concepts of, of aerosol dispersal, they are very much transmissible, no, trans, that's the right word, transferable from plant research to sort of spread of aerosols in humans. I don't really want to say medical research because, again, I want to be also be very careful about sort of non-experts giving medical advice. I, th I know that this is also uh, problematic. Um, but at the same time, I mean, their conclusion is not to not wear masks, but it's rather to be a bit safer and wear the mask a little bit more often than you otherwise might do. I mean, I, I feel like I've been 
doing that that seems intuitive to me like if you go <laughs> out like outside is not magic it's just a bigger inside unless i mean there's spacing and wind and like that seems intuitive to me <laughs> if you're passing people yeah i mean to me it also sounds very intuitive but uh when you look at like regulatory bodies they there's a lot there's very often the idea that hold your events outside because it's safer and it's true that it's it's definitely safer like it's more safe than if you do the same event indoors but it's not safe um and i think that's something um that's just like yeah important to know and 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 to act on that even outside i mean nowadays with when it gets cold it's also um much like today i was walking outside and i was wearing a mask pretty much the whole time also because it was warmer on my face um, it's kind of um, yeah, actually pleasant now. Yeah, um, I have a story about Aussie froggy accents. Mm -hmm. um, so, Anuran accents, continental scale, citizen science data reveals spatial and temporal patterns of core variability. So, this is just a paper that came out in October by Savannah Weaver and colleagues in Ecology and Evolution, and basically. They've had a look at the spatial and temporal patterns of core characteristics in six different Australian frog species, and they found that there's this kind of inter intraspecific um, core variability. So, sort of within the species, there's different accents based on different regions. Um, they called them Anuran accents. So Anuran is referring to the frogs, but. The cool thing about this, I think, apart from the fact that like Aussie frogs have little Aussie frog accents, is um, the fact that in order to dis make this discovery, they had to get a certain amount, like a, a high sample size. So they had to have at least like over 20 different calls, I think. Um, and to do that, they actually used citizen science. So they use this continental scale citizen science project, which is called Frog ID. And that allowed them to find these different frogs in different areas all across Australia, which then they could attribute these local accents to. So I find, I mean, I really love citizen science stuff. I love froggies and the, the Aussie thing helps as well. So I thought that was a really charming story. How did they do it? Did they just put your smartphone out and record sound samples and then they analyze them somehow i'm not sure it is just we use data i haven't read the the full thing i can look at the yeah i'm just looking check. at the website and i say like you download an app and, so you and there's use like your a recording smartphones. button yeah so you use your smartphones to record the calling but i'm not sure if you have to have some certain like i mean an app but i'm not sure if you have to have a certain type of phone i guess not but um frog id has received um over 150,000 submissions um with uh, 198 of Australia's 240 known frog species recorded by different um, scientists. So it's really cool, I think. Yeah, I ju I'm just seeing there's like a map that you can explore. Um, that's really cool. Um, I just took part in a citizen science experiment as well, but I will talk about this at a different time because it's not fully over yet. Um, sort of the, the data acquisition phase is over. Like I had a little automatic camera in my garden to take pictures of wildlife. Um, but now like part of the experiment or the citizen science project is actually also analyzing my own data, which I find pretty cool because usually in citizen science, it's you are just collecting the data and then a person smarter than you is analyzing the data. And you then the next time you learn about it is when the publication is out and somebody uh, writes a press release. And then you're like, ah, oh, that's actually where my data ended up. Um, 
and now more and more projects are much more hands-on and also use that to teach about the scientific process and so when i went through the analysis i think i will talk about this a little bit here as well because i think it's pretty exciting um, to get people actually do science and not just like take data points but understand the data points that you're taking and what to do with them even though the real science is still done by real scientists who then write publications you still get a better understanding of what you do at least that's uh, that's my idea now let's see how it was when i went through my own like statistical research um of the the raccoons and squirrels that went through my garden I have another kind of um, ecological-based um, story. So this is from Functional Ecology, which is also a different journal. And it came out in October. It's Aiming, Zhao, and um, colleagues. And it's called Ants Adjust Their Tool Use Strategy in Response to Foraging Risk. So this is, again, like quite a simple and neat exercise where they studied um, fire ants. So it's Solenopsis ricteri is the species. And they just basically let the, the ants go for some sugar water. And they had this hypothesis that as it got more risky for the ants to take the sugar water, the ants might adapt their behavior. And indeed, that's what they, had, they did. So they adjusted the sugar water by basically adding a surfacant or a sort of a, a detergent, which means that the surface tension of the water is lower, which means that instead of just like reaching out and kind of balancing with their, their front legs on it, that the ants can fall in and drown. And they found that when they made it more likely that the ants would drown, the ants started bringing in bits of sand and actually building structures mm -hmm. so that they could get the sugar still without risking um, their own life to get it. So I think this is kind of, yeah, it's, it's sort of a tool use thing, which again is something that we often say is only found in primates and maybe some like extraordinary mammals and, and a few other species. But this is kind of a different way of looking at tool use i would say it's quite nice the swarm intelligence of ants is something that i find incredibly fascinating it's so hard to wrap my head around because each ant is so stupid like they have like very small brains and like individually they can't make the full understanding like understanding uh, understanding decision of or rational decision of getting the sand and building a bridge and so on but then you see like i i remember an image that i saw where the ants build like a massive bridge out of their bodies to a wasp nest that they wanted to attack because wasp nests they often are attached by a very small sort of choke point to wherever they are fixed to because they know that ants want to get to them and they can easily defend the the hive when there's just a small uh, choke point but the ants sort of went around the choke point by building their own bridge and then crawling across the bodies of their own and so they had like a, a different attack point that the wasps couldn't defend as easily and that's also like a very sort of smart decision and i find it so interesting to think about how how that came to be is this just like just an evolutionary program is it sort of just like there's a trigger set it's just like okay now they put out the pheromones that say bridge building and they build a bridge and then done or does it work differently like how dynamic is that and what you like the experiment you describe yeah sounds to me like there is more sort of dynamic decision making there or or maybe it's just more complicated anyway my, my point is i find it fascinating i don't understand it um but i don't think i don't think in this case it had to be group activity i think i mean this is like also an individual ant being like oh i can no longer just like float across the sugar water and and get some sugar I, i'm i'm gonna drown so then it starts doing things so i don't think this is like a, a swarm energy this is like where they're like an ant using a tool but where the ants that were like starting to drown and could recover 
because to me it sounded like like some of them like sort of dropped under the surface and drowned and the other ants saw that their mates would disappear yeah but i mean that's that's also an unfair you're saying oh that's that's not an individual ant like if you saw somebody else drown and you decided not to swim that's still an individual yoram decision that's not like a swim yeah yeah that's my, that's my point like i i don't know how far like where how how much is the is this an individual decision or are they all producing in sort of a pheromone that says oh there's like drowned ants and everybody makes like a little observation and then it reaches a threshold and then it triggers a different behavior I mean, it could be i'm, I'm not sure I'm if just they saying, know like, why I don't but, know, but it could be that they put their little antenna in there and they're like yeah oh this is no this is changed and like i mean we can also feel if we put our hand in something that it's like no longer water it's now honey we would be like mm, i'm not going to swim in the honey because that seems like a bad idea so yeah. i don't think that it could be yeah but it could have also been that the other ants yeah told them with with pheromones or with i don't know antenna shifting or I, i'm not really sure how ants communicate but yeah, either of this can be true, but I mean, yeah, it says on the study that ants are some of the the few invertebrates that we know that can actually use tools. So, whatever, ants are cool, Yarm. They they really are. My my next thing is about transparent soil. That's something that you wrote an article about. Um, yeah. And now there's been um, another study where they use transparent soil to their advantage, um, and they used. Um, this, this soil um, based on nafion, which is a compound that's transparent. It's rather uh, expensive. And you wrote an article actually about some plant researchers that found um, a cheaper way to make something that behaves like this expensive naf- nafion product, but um, yeah, is quicker to make, cheaper, and works very well and is transparent. And so you could see root growth in a transparent soil without x-ray or taking the, the, the plant out. Um, and in this study... Um, they um, studied bacteria and fungi and the interaction between those, how they behave in a drying soil and a rewatered soil, for example. What happens to the bacteria? Do they all die? How do they survive the drought? And they could actually do microscopy in the soil structures. Um, and that, that's where the transparent soil really helped them. Um, plus, they could very easily adjust sort of the, the growth conditions to be as, as close to nature as possible to get any meaningful data in this symbiotic relationship or the, like the not even symbiotic relationship in the relationship between bacteria and fungi that grow in the same environment. And they found, for example, that bacteria, they can escape the drought by when they, when they hang close to fungi, they can then sort of use the remaining water and nutrients that are in the fungus to survive and then regrow when water comes again from sort of these spots where they are close to fungus, where the bacteria that are not close to, to a fungus, they just die off when it gets very dry in the soil. Um, That's really interesting because actually when we were researching this transparent soil before, they were discussing some of the different like physical properties of how this transparent material had to imitate soil. So sort of having grains that yeah. sort of allow the plant roots to wrap around. But I didn't think about the the smaller scale properties which would then allow fungi and micro like these these small organisms to grow and that's also a really important part about of plant growth is that the the symbionts or or the things that are also like yeah not so helpful can grow in the same way as they would in soil so yeah cool yeah um i have something that's just a quick follow up i think we talked about this um before probably in august there was a worldview publication from teresa tenenbaum that said Publishers let transgender scholars correct their names. So this is a discussion that mm-hmm. when um, 
like people have already published under one name, but then um, changed their name. They want this this old name, this dead name, to be replaced with their their actual name, so the, the newer name. Um, and that's basically not possible at the moment because we have this idea of not going back in and try like fixing manuscripts um, and making these changes, which is just a bit. Stupid. I mean, there's no reason why these things can't be changed. So we discussed that briefly, and I just had an update, which is that in October, um, PLOS came out with a statement that is implementing name changes for published transgender authors, and they basically also acknowledge that it's stupid. So there's a bit which says that um, published academic records have been difficult to implement since traditionally changes are limited. Um, to correcting uh, author or publisher errors. So if something's not seen as an error that was made, it's it's not changed. And then they say, we believe there is no reason for this to be a barrier. So PLOS is now going forward with a decision to then republish these papers if people have requested a name change um, and just sort of fully replace them online, including all of the metadata, so that they will be now corrected with the true name of the author in question. So that's, that's a super good. cool move forward. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good that they acknowledge that there's actually nothing but their own decision that stops them from doing that. Yeah, I like that. I was like, there's no reason for this. Yeah. So let's just fix it because there was actually no reason why we were doing it before. My last fact today is um, new research. Um, that's archaeological research. Um, uh, and I put that in here because it's something that comes also up very often in sort of gender debates about how different or similar are men and women. And then some people say, look, men have evolved to be hunters and women have evolved to be gatherers and therefore we have different brain structures and therefore we are inherently different and therefore there's some jobs that men are better and some jobs that are women are be uh, women are better at um so it opens up this 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 whole mindset that says like we are biology biologically so different from one another that we can't take each other's jobs and that we still need to follow these sort of primal imprintings um And while the article that I'm posting doesn't really talk about this, I see this in, in, in this context, which is new research that found that women also hunted. Um, turns out mm -hmm. they, they found several graves at different locations. The first ones in the Andes and the South American mountains um, of uh, graves of um, women with hunting gear in their graves. And um, while an individual finding can be also explained by things like these were gifts made by sort of the hunter community. Maybe it was an important woman to the community. The men gave to, to honor her what was most important to the men. So they gave their hunting equipment. And so it, that's why they ended up together in the grave. But the fact that they found many other graves as well, um, and that they also the graves, as far as I understood it from the article, I'm now archaeologist, um, they looked like hunter's graves. Um, and when they first found a skeleton, they thought it was a male skeleton. And then they had a new technique where they can actually check some protein in the animal of our teeth, um, where there is differences between the male version of the protein and the female version of the protein. Um, and they could analyze that now. And so they had like very solid evidence on the gender of a skeleton when they still have the teeth intact. And based on that, they could actually say, look, this is not a male skeleton, although it looks like a sort of a male hunter grave. 
It's a female mm -hmm. hunter grave. And then they looked into other research and other evidence and they actually found, I think, about a dozen of documented places where um, there were actually women together with hunting gear in graves all across, I think, the Americas, at least, northern and southern America. Um, so which gives us the a, a very smoking gun evidence that women were not just gatherers, but that the task of hunting was also performed by women because um, mm. it's actually a disadvantage if you have such a strong division of labor um, because there might be reasons like cases where like the entire tribe has to hunt. Um, so why would the women not be able to hunt? And, uh, um, and they say in the article, which I found quite, quite nice, they say, look, they, they live in the Andes, and Andes, 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 um, at a, at a height where look, um, These women were living high up in the Andes at 13,000 feet full time, she says. If you can do that, surely you can bring down a deer. Um, so I, I like that, that idea that like, why, why would they not be hunters? And to me, with that, it, it also like this, this argument of us evolving into these very specific rules in a community uh, or like uh, uh, jobs in a community all falls apart if you really think about it. And like, Also, I'm going to get in trouble for this, and it's probably not any way true of these tribes because they, they lived at these altitudes. But I think altitude sickness is something that actually affects men worse than it affects women. That's one of the, <laughs> the things. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the fact that, um, or the, the idea that, uh, not the fact, the idea that uh, men are hunters and women are gatherers is something that was sort of came up in a symposium in 1966. Um, by male archaeologists and they it just based seems like it that thing like the birds that we discussed um a few weeks back right like <laughs> there was people who saw evidence and were like no no no, it is known men hunt it is known and everybody's like yeah but there's a woman with like yeah a sh like i don't know bow and arrow there and they're like no 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 but it is known and <laughs> it just seems like one of those things where we're ignoring the first like this Occam's razor rule of let's just go to the most basic thing and instead like putting all of our social constructs and social context onto these these conclusions we're making which is again proof that science is not pure it's completely biased by the scientists own values and and choices yeah i mean to be fair there was like evidence back uh, back then and now of um some uh, tribes that still today follow sort of um many of the culture techniques that were used um 9, years ago um so the, the hadza of tanzania uh, and son of southern africa are two tribes that still follow these um hunter-gatherer lifestyle and there all the men are hunters and all the women are gatherers in these communities and based on that um together with the the archaeological evidence people constructed the idea that there is this very strong division of of labor but now with like more more data and more more understanding we can actually overturn that and actually like paint a more complete picture. So yeah, so that's new evidence that women um, did hunt um, very likely. And um, yeah, that's pretty cool. So do you have uh, another fact for us before we go to um, our animal fact? No, but today? we both have the same cat fact, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was all over the news now. Um, I played a cat jingle, although it's not a cat that we talk about today. <coughs> Cat fact. 
When asking Australians what the most cat-like creature they have that's a native to the continent, some would say the chudich or the quoll, a large carnivorous marsupial. But others <laughs> would say the platypus. Cuyorum. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the platypus is one of these weird things in nature um, because they they are mammals, but they lay eggs, right? Do I get the- They're monotremes. I don't know what that means, but... That's an egg-laying mammal. It's okay. a platypus or an echidna. It's like we've made up a little special rule for them. Yeah, and they have a beak and they're venomous, right? Um, yeah, they, the, the males have little spurs on their legs. and they. I used to take a lot of joy at pretending I was a platypus and like spurring people with my feet. <laughs> like, psh, psh. So that, 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 Wow, I'm really annoying to hang out with. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. Social distancing is super good for my friends. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, platypuses yeah, so are great. It's they they look a little bit like if you if you have an animal designer software and you just click random, one of the things that might turn out is a it's a platypus with like they have a beak and they have a beaver tail and they lay eggs and they are mammals and they're venomous and what they have just discovered now um, is that they glow they flu- they emit fluorescence under UV light like a, a greenish fluorescence. Um, so the researchers, they, um, it's something that is getting more attention now. Um, often, like the first findings were by accident when people found that animals actually emit, like they glow when, when people shine a UV light on them. Um, uh, so when they were looking for lichen um, that are known to glow under UV light and they would uh, like shine their little torches around um, and suddenly like a, a bat or a frog would light up and they would realize, oh, this animal also has a uh, has some properties that it makes it glow under UV light, um, and that made them now curious. And so people went actually into um, zoological collections where they had some dead um, platypuses, platypi, um, a female and a male, uh, and they then put them under UV light and looked how their fur reacted. And while they're completely brown under visible light, they turn into sort of a cyan greenish color under UV light, um, which is very interesting because we don't really know why that is. I just want to make a note here that apparently platypus comes from a Greek root, so the correct plural might be platypodes, (laughs) but platypuses is commonly used. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, Yeah, I mean, we don't really know what these, why, why they are reacting like that, right? They... In, no. in some animals... I mean, you mentioned already the lichen thing, so one of the theories was that, like, for the squirrels that sort of have this biofluorescence, it might be that they can biofluoresce similarly to the lichen growing on the trees, and therefore you don't see, like, a squirrel-shaped blackout on a tree, which would be a very obvious clue for something trying to eat squirrels. So that was one of the, the answers, but... Other ground-living animals also do this weird biofluorescence, which doesn't make any sense. So it seems mostly unclear to me. Yeah, there's also the idea that um, it can be a sexual thing, so that it helps to, like like in some birds, that uh, where the males are very colorful, they are also very colorful in the UV spectrum, so sort of to increase their perceived brightness. That could be something, but as in platypus, it was both the male and the female that have this effect on their fur. It's unlikely that it's something for sort of a mating-based um, ritual or behavior. 
I mean, it might help them not mistake other animals. <laughs> like, maybe instead of accidentally mating with, like, a duck, they end up with other platypodes. Yeah. Or it could help. I mean, here they say it could also help them to camouflage, maybe, um, by uh, instead of, which I find an interesting idea, instead of um, reflecting UV light, they were actually absorbing it and emitting it at a different wavelength. So if a predator has UV light receptors, and they rely on the reflection of UV light, a platypus that absorbs it and emits it at a different wavelength might look darker to the predator. But it's also, it's just a hypothesis. There's no, uh, we don't really know yet. But it's another of um, the weird traits of the platypus that's, that's being uncovered. Mm -hmm. So this is coming originally from a study that was published in Mammalia um, by Paula Spath, Anich and colleagues, and it's called Bio biofluorescence in the platypus. Also, the name of the, the platypus species is Ornithorhynchus anatinus. So, like, anatin, isn't that duck-related? Like, isn't anatidaphobia this made-up fear of ducks watching you that, like, some I don't know. Um, cartoonists came up with? I want to look that up now. Anatinus. Duck, Latin. Anas, yeah. Anas is... Burns uh, out! Um, Anatinus, which means duck-like in Latin. <laughs> yeah. I just tried to make a pun of ananas now because of anas meaning duck in Latin, but it also wouldn't translate so because ananas is not a word in English. <laughs> Ornithorhynchus anatinus means bird snout duck-like. So it's it's Latin full Latin name is bird snout duck-like, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Poor platypodes. Yeah. Uh, shall we wrap up? I think it's time to wrap up. Yeah, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, so before we go into our usual spiel, I would say uh, we just published uh, a new episode of our plant book club. Um, we talked about the Drunken Botanist book by Amy Stewart. It was a it was a very fun book, and I think even though we sort of had within our little book club um, a gradual decrease in interest in alcohol from me being the one that, that drinks the most alcohol. Tegan, you drink a little bit, and Alan doesn't really like to drink alcohol. And together we reviewed this book on the impact of plants on alcohol, uh, alcoholic drinks. Um, I think we all found that the book was pretty fun to read and had a lot of interesting facts in there. Yeah, you don't have to be really into drinking to get a lot out of the book, I would say. So if you're interested in that, check out the Plant Book Club, um, the newest episode. We link that in um, the description. For all other things, you can find us on the social media, on Facebook and Instagram. You can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, I am usually hanging around on Twitter, although I'm evading it a little bit these days. But usually you find me on Twitter and that's at Plants Pipettes. We also have a blog where we release two new stories week every week usually. So that's www.plantsandpipettes.com. Um, and you can always reach out to us if you have any comments, any, any stories, anything that you want to share with us. You can reach out to us over social media or leave a comment on the website or contact us through that. Um, we're always happy to hear feedback from you. And that's all. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.